chapter 23 of Leviticus, verses 9 to 14. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. On that, and on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb a year old without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hin. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain parched or fresh until the same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Now, strange place to begin, but let's begin here. This is Wade Boggs. Wade Boggs was my favorite baseball player when I, in the 80s and 90s. That's how old I am. Now, Wade Boggs was renowned, not only is he in the Hall of Fame as being one of the finest contact hitters in baseball history, but he was renowned for having a lot of weird rituals, pre-game rituals. Before a game, he would wake up the exact same time every, every game day. He would eat chicken before every game, every game ever, 3,000 hits. That's what he ate. He would go out and for, ground, ground, for fielding practice before a game, he would take exactly 117 ground balls, no more, no less. He would go out for batting practice at exactly 5.17 p.m. And he would go out for wind sprints at exactly 7.17 p.m. without fail. And before every at-bat, if you watch him, you'll see he does this. He puts one foot in the box, one hand up to say, hold on, and he draws in the ground the Hebrew word for life. Okay? And this ritual, he does these things all the time. And he is, although he's, we, we kind of, he's joked about as being this highly ritualistic kind of guy, he's very human that way. Humans are ritualistic. You may not know it, we talked a little last week, but rituals make up a large part of what we do. And they're not the same as routines, because a routine is, you know, before you go out to work, you may want to shower because you smell. That's a routine. It, there's no meaning behind it other than the fact that you don't want to smell. But a ritual would be, I wake up at this time every morning, and here's the routine. I go, and I'll hit, uh, the ritual is I, I start my coffee, I get the newspaper, I get my Bible, I do my little time alone, I finish the coffee, or whatever. And I do it because when I've done this ritual, I feel better, I'm ready to start my day. There's a difference. And the reason this is very important for us as people is because we do them all the time. Sometimes the rituals are like Mr. Boggs, and they're meant to give you, uh, to overcome anxiety, to give you confidence in the midst of something. They're very personal, but other times they're more corporate, and rituals bind us together at times, but they also help us to, um, to define, strengthen, and express values. So, for instance, um, every November 11th, we wear a poppy, right? Remember, rituals are symbolic and full of meaning. You wear a poppy that symbolizes something, and we all do it together, and we do that, we express a common value, and we do it every year because rituals are repeated. And it tells us time and again in our children and those who come that we value the sacrifices of people who have fought for us. We do this in many ways. National anthems, you all stand and sing the national anthem. We do it before certain events. Why? Because we're expressing a value we have. 
and it binds us together. We are Canadian. We are poppy wearers, right? Or, and, and even recently in COVID, if you remember, when things really started and we didn't know what was going on, though I wonder if we do now, um, we, there, we would go, and it wasn't here necessarily, but in Manhattan and in in Toronto, people would go at a certain time out their windows and on their balconies and bang pots and cheer. Remember that? And that was a, a, a united effort to say we value and care for our healthcare workers. And these rituals are important. They make us who we are. They show us who we are. They do something to us. And Leviticus is loaded with rituals. That's what Leviticus is. And the rituals in the sacrificial system say a very clear thing. They're symbolic and they tell you God is holy, you're a sinner, there's a need for atonement, and here's the way to get it. That's what sacrifice does. But when we turn to feasts in chapter 23, what are, they, what are those about? What's the purpose of these rituals? Because they're different. And to understand what the point of a feast in, in the ancient Hebrew world is, it comes immediately at the very start of chapter 23. Here's what it says. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Now, to understand, I underlined holy convocation. Holy is just the word, well, just. It's the word kadosh, which means holy. But convocation is this word mikra. And to understand it, it means assembly, but it means much more. And I learned this by reading a lot of Jewish writers, not Christian ones, but the Jewish writers trying to explain what is this feast about. More and more you realize almost all of them say the same thing. It's a gathering with a purpose. And not just the purpose, they all almost, in, almost entirely liken it to a dress rehearsal. A feast is meant to rehearse something. You get together, and like a dress rehearsal, if you've ever been on stage or anything, it is practice for something real that's coming. And this is the point of the feasts. The point of a feast is to rehearse something. It's a ritual that is rooted in the past. This is something that's happened in the past. It has a future implication, and this is how you respond in the present to it. So the past, the present, and the future are wrapped up in the rituals that we all do, but especially, in this case, here of Israel. And so, in these rituals, including the first fruits ritual, there is this rehearsal of the drama of redemption. There's a rehearsal of all that God has done. And if you've ever been on stage, you know dress rehearsals aren't you just doing something, but you're becoming something. Because in a ritual, you're not just performing something woodenly, but you're actually learning the part better. You're becoming the character more. You're learning more about the role. Something is happening to you, not just from you. And so the feasts were not meant to just be like many things we do, just become rote and just do them as if they're magic, right? They're magic incantations. If I do these things, God will provide me with a harvest. That's the way unpious people and pagans approach God. But the way the feasts are meant to be is meant to be something far more intimate. And now, the first Feast of the First Fruits points them to something. And what it does, it rehearses Christmas. It prepares you for Christmas. And Christmas itself is a rehearsal for something. And so if we understand the first fruits a little better, we're going to understand Christmas a bit better and understand ourselves and what we are, we are to be at Christmas and for the rest of our walk in the future. So we're going to do that. We're going to look at this feast quickly, and we're going to see and ask the questions, what has, what has he done? So what has God done? What does the feast tell us about what God has done, what it all means, and then why it matters? 
okay? Or how it changes. Maybe how it changes is a better way. So what has he done? What does it mean? And how does it change us? So what has he done? Now, the first feast of the first fruits is, no, I don't want to burst any bubbles. It is just a fertility ritual. Every culture has a fertility ritual. And this is why it takes place at the same time of year that we now call Easter, which is a fertility ritual. Now, not the same, though, because, see, in the ancient world, fertility rituals were meant to bribe the gods, give me a good harvest. And many people think this is all the, this feast is, but it's not. It's something much more going on. So here's one of the purposes of it. Understand the word first fruits. Boy, I have a few words are more um, slandered in Christianity by us in the church than first fruits. We think that our tithe and offering is the first fruits. You don't understand what first fruits means, obviously. We don't sometimes, because we think first fruits means the best. It's not what it means. If it was, he'd say, bring me the best of your harvest. He doesn't say that. He says, bring me the first fruits. There's a very big difference. See, this ritual takes place in the spring, when very little, some stuff would have come to harvest, but really, it's barley. And it doesn't come at the end. See, if he says, give me your best harvest, what it means is, it's like a kid going through a bag of marbles. Give me your best marbles. What does he do? Well, he sifts through them, and he finds the best ones, right? The ones that are untouched, perfect, and he presents them. But that's not what God wants. He says, bring me the first. I don't care about the quality of them. The quality is not the issue in this ritual. Abel's offering was not accepted because it was better in quality than Cain's. We'll talk about that in a few weeks, actually, on a one-off sermon I'll do. And that's not the point. The first fruits is this. Give me, when you don't have assurance of the future, give me the first that comes. You're relying on the harvest to come throughout the year. Give me what you have at the start, trusting me that the second offering will come. This is why it's called first fruits, because it anticipates a second and a third and a fourth. And so by giving the first, you're not asked to bribe God, you're asked to trust him. This is the point of the first fruits. Give me when you have no, no food for tomorrow. You know, George Mueller, who remembers George Mueller? He's a great example of a guy who's a first fruits kind of person. Let me give you this, even though I have no hope for tomorrow. There's no food for tomorrow, so I'll give you everything I have today, just trusting you for tomorrow. And that is the purpose he wants us to do that, and this is why, and there, you know, in the basis, why do we do that? It's not to bribe him, but it's based on who he is. Look at how it starts, and the Lord spoke to Moses, capital L-O-R-D. Remember I've told you this before, if you're in the Old Testament class, you've heard this many times. Capital L-O-R-D means Yahweh. That's the name in, in well, it's put in English in the capitals, but that's the name that when Moses said, who are you? Who should I tell Pharaoh you are? He says, I am, Right? It's the intimate name for God. That's what Lord is here. So when he says, I, the Lord, say this to you, it's a name that conjures stories, memories of who he is. Just like if I say Wade Boggs to you from now on, you're going to think the chicken-eating baseball player or whatever. It conjures images. So when he comes and he says, I, the Lord, am saying this to you, he's saying, the one who saved you from the Red Sea and from Egypt, it's me. I'm the one saying to do this. The one who provided an offering and a way out for Isaac on Mount Moriah, that's me. Because I have provided in the past, trust me in the future. In fact, did you notice when this offering is supposed to be offered? When you come into the land. They didn't even have to offer this for another many years. 
The point is, I'm going to first bring you into the land, then you show obedience. This is the way the gospel always works. Grace, then obedience. It's never obedience to receive grace. It's not give me the offering and then maybe I'll bring you into the land if I like the offering. It's I'm going to bring you into the land and after I've proven myself to be Lord, then you bring the offering to me. And that's the basis for the first fruits. That's why we trust him. That's why we look foolish when we give when we shouldn't. How many people at Christmas right now are tithing to the church and wondering if they can afford things? Like probably a lot of people. And yet this is what God calls us to do to trust him because he has proven trustworthy. And we do this all the time. One of the great, terrible critiques of skeptics, and I had when I was a skeptic, is faith is blind. You're expecting me to trust based on nothing. Man, those are children's arguments. When I go to get a mortgage, they don't just give me the money blindly. They say, based on your giving history, I'm going to trust that you'll continue to make payments. Based on past experience and knowledge, I trust you for the future. If I am at a baseball practice when I was a kid and my parents were supposed to pick me up, but they were late, I didn't despair because I knew that they had always picked me up before. My faith wasn't blind, it was rooted in experience. And Israel's being told, because I have been your God all this time, trust me to continue to be your God. I didn't ask for payment to take you out of Egypt, and I won't ask for it to bring you into the promised land. And so this is vital to what is going on in the first fruits. Uh, festival. Now, what we gain from it, though, every time Israel would come year after year, only the men had to go, but the families would often come. Every time the men came and the, women, the families came and gave, every time they trusted God by giving, they built up the muscle of giving. Every time. And it became stronger and stronger. This is why when people are asking about giving to the church or anything, I don't say, we, the church isn't, we don't survive by your money, we survive by God's grace right? But I always encourage people, give them $1. Not because of the money, but because you need to build up the muscle of generosity, because the more generous you are, the more generous you'll become. The more you trust God, the more trustworthy he will prove himself to be. Um, and in the same way, the less you trust God, the less you're, you're not going to ever grow in trust. So it's a muscle. So every time God tells them, keep doing this every year, forever, to build up that muscle, because if, we're, if we don't, we're prone to thinking that God isn't the God, isn't Lord. He's some other deity that has to be appeased all the time. So it's a muscle that we, have, we build up. So the point in this first one, what has God done? The festival tells us that he has saved us. Therefore, we should trust. That's the first thing. What has he done? Saved Israel. Now, second, why, what does it mean? So something seismic happened in the world. Massive happened on, on August 27th, 1783. Few people know the date. Maybe you don't even know what happened, but this is what happened. About 150,000 people gathered in Paris, including the king. At the time, it was Louis XVI, who was about to get his head cut off six years later, uh, and his wife, Marie Antoinette. They're all here in, in Paris watching. And what they're watching is something that's going on because there's two guys, Joseph and Etienne um, Montgolfier. Okay? This, these two intelligent men have decided they're going to do, show the world something they've never seen before, which is they're going to have a hot air balloon float. Now, here's what one historian writes about the scene when, the, when this balloon... Remember, no one's ever done this. No one's ever seen anything leave the earth for more than that long. So when this happens, here's what one historian writes. The idea of a body parted from the earth and voyaging in space had something so admirable and so sublime about it, so far removed from ordinary laws 
that all the spectators were filled with enthusiasm. Even the ladies ignored the rain, spoiling their elegant dresses and coiffures as they turned their faces to the sky. Less than an hour later, the partly deflated balloon landed in a village about 15 miles north of Paris, where peasants, startled by this uncanny apparition from the heavens, attacked it with pitchforks and other tools. <laughs> so, first let's, let's, let's have some, feel, feel sorry for these poor peasants. Remember, I was up this morning at four, and I'm looking up, I'm reading, and I see a plane going by, the lights flashing in the sky. That's, we're, we're expected, we're used to seeing things in the sky. They'd never seen anything but birds in the sky. So to see this orb fall down, let's cut them some slack, right? But, but the point of it was this. If a balloon could do that, the reason it caused such wonder, the reason it was so seismic in the history of, of humanity was if we could break that rule of gravity, what rule couldn't we break? If we could separate ourselves from the earth, if we're no longer earthbound, what does the sky's the limit, quite literally? And so it caused, it was such a seismic event that it caused us to reconsider everything, everything. And now, if a balloon can float, if there is a God who saves, and if in Christmas that God was born, then that moment is too seismic to remain a historical event. It must influence and interpret everything we've seen. Now, if you don't believe it happened, if you don't believe this, this child was, was God, well, just go on doing what you're doing. Just go on, looking down at the floor, looking at yourself. That's okay. I, you're, you're free to do that. But if Christmas is what it claims to be, you simply just can't ignore it. It's too big an event. And what does it mean then for us, for the past, the present, and the future? Because if it's true, it's so significant, it just can't stay in history. And, well, here's what it means. Well, what is it rehearsing for? Right? So this event happened. There's a God who saves. Well, what does it mean? What does it mean for them? What are they, re what are they rehearsing? Remember, if the Jews say that this feast is pointing forward to something in the future, well, what is it pointing to in the future? And the thing that it's clearly pointing to is a better harvest. You see, it's always anticipating. The Israelites, all their writing is anticipating a point when these sacrifices won't have to be done, when our hunger will be satisfied, when we won't have to worry about the rain and the, and, and the wind yesterday and all these things destroying crops. It's looking forward to something. And Paul, in the New Testament, lets some light in and helps us understand what this all means because he makes a direct reference to Christ and this festival. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, so there's a few things going on. One of them is this. Paul is saying, those offerings you made, the first fruits offerings, they are fulfilled in Christ. Because you notice what the offerings are. First, you bring your offering in the first fruits and you wave it. Literally, the priest would wave a sheaf of barley before God. Then the other sacrifices were made of a lamb, grain, and wine. It's not by accident that when Christ comes, he speaks of himself as, well, look at John. We'll put them up on the screen. The first one from John. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So first fruits is anticipating the perfect offering that won't have to be made again and again. And Christ says, I am that lamb. The second one, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And the last one, well, I could say many more, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. Of this is my, sorry, of this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the, trend, for the forgiveness of sins. And so Christ, it's pointing ahead to, to Christ, the perfect offering, the one that will come and mean we don't have to make any more offerings. But there's something even more profound happening. I don't say more profound, but profound. Remember before, the first offering anticipates and suggests a second. We give the first knowing there will be a second. So when he comes and he says Christ is the first fruit offered to God. Remember, Christ comes as a perfect human. He lives the life Israel should have lived, Adam should have lived, and his life is accepted as the first fruit. His life is waved before God on the cross, and it's accepted by God. And what Paul is pointing at, and James, as you're going to see later, points to, is he's saying, but something more, there's a second, something's anticipated beyond the first fruit, right? Something is coming afterwards. So if the Red Sea points to the promised land, which is what the feast is saying, right? I saved you at the Red Sea, so I will bring you into this land. Therefore, right? I saved here, I'll bring you into something else. Then Christmas is anticipating something else in the same way because God is building on a plan of redemption. Because Israel had a future, you have a future. Because Christ lives, you live. And the hope is ultimately, it means that our, our hunger will be satisfied somehow. That's what it means. God is saved and he's going to satisfy our hunger. How? Now, this is the part that changes us. So Christmas must mean more than simply delayed gratification. You see, if I was to stop here, and unfortunately many do, and say, you've got, listen, just hold off your hopes until the, end, until the afterlife. That's what a lot of people think Christianity is, right? Put up with crap now so you can have everything then. And it's a great, this is why Karl Marx thought it was the opiate of the masses, because it subdues us. It makes us tolerate terrible government and poverty and injustice because we hope for better things in, in the afterlife. But if that's the case, run away from Christianity because that's not what it's meant to be. If Christianity doesn't have an impact on your life here and now, then it is not what it claims to be. There must be some impact now on life. And this is how you know. Your present is always the result of your past and your future. Who you are today is a result of where you were and where you think you're going. Always. Always. And so, if that's the case, then we need to think about that, those things in regards to Scripture here. So, where is it? Where, what are we to be today? If we know God has saved us and He's going to give us this glorious future, well, what does that mean now? How does that impact today? And the answer comes in James, where he picks up on the exact same thing Paul picks up on. And he says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. This is mind-blowing. So what he's saying is this. We're not first fruits. We are a kind of first fruits. It's important that we notice that. Christ is the first fruit. It's like, imagine this. Christ is waved as the first fruit before God and says, accept this instead of humanity. God accepts it. Christ ascends. And now he says, I have made these my people. The church is my people. I am now waving them as a kind of first fruits in the face of the world so that when the world looks to us, they're seeing a dress rehearsal. They're seeing evidence of the past resurrection. Did it really happen? The only evidence for the resurrection was lots of little, we could argue about evidence for the resurrection, but the greatest evidence is you. 
You are proof that he rose because you are different from the world. You're a kind of first fruit, but you're also a foretaste of the coming resurrection. People should see this dress rehearsal and long for the reality of it, somehow. And that should be convicting. We should worry about that because they're not. Because every trouble I see in the world on the news is happening in this church. The divisions about COVID, it's happening here. Your bitterness over your family, who doesn't like, we, I'm guilty, we're all guilty of this. Who disagrees, it's here in the church. It's all, we're no better. And that's, that's a convicting issue. It's not much of a Christmas sermon, is it? But you see, this is what we're being told. It should change our lives. There's this wonderful line here. It's Trevin Wax is an, is an author, Christian author, and here's what he says. Our presence in the world is like the first rays of light after a long night of darkness. We are like the first spots of grass peeking out above the snowfall and signaling the end of a long winter. We are the beginning of a fresh breeze on a hot summer day, signaling the coming of a refreshing rainstorm. We are to live now in light of the future God has promised. And this is the way it is. This is who we are to be. I don't want to go too long, but here's an example I've used before with you guys, I think. You have two people working the exact same job, right? You have Sally and Joe. I always use Sally and Joe. Forgive me if your name's Sally or or Joe. Sally and Joe, they have the exact same job. They have the exact same office, exact same temperature in their office. Everything about their job is the same. The only difference is Joe is told he's going to get $10,000 a year. Sally is told she's going to get a million dollars a year. When they meet at the coffee, uh, at the water cooler, and they start discussing their job, Joe says, man, this is a crappy job. All we do all day is the same thing, and man, it's horrible. Sally's outlook is probably a little different, right? No, pretty good job, I think, Joe. How come? What's the difference? What makes one approach their present circumstances, their job, differently? The reward they think they're getting. That's the difference. And so if we actually believe that we're going to get everything the Bible claims, this satisfaction for the hunger, you're not going to be complaining and moaning about the world in the same way. You can't. Because every time you complain and moan, and me too, I'm, we're all guilty of this. This is why we need Christ. We have to continually repent. Because every time we do it, we show we don't believe the gospel. We don't believe we're actually inheritors. We're not convinced. Sally is convinced. And that's what we're being called to do. Now, that all sounds very good, very theoretical. But the reality, as we've heard a couple times already in this service, is this. Christmas is not easy. Some, it's, in, it's in the Dickens um, Christmas Carol. Um, this wonderful line is, um, oh, how does it go now? Um, Christmas is a time above all others when want is most keenly felt and abundance rejoices. And he's right. Christmas is a time when you are either, depending on the year and your circumstances, really struggling. It's hard. You may be headed, you may be, maybe it's something like you don't have money or a job. Maybe it's health. Maybe a family member is struggling. Maybe you've lost somebody at this time of year and it's a difficult season. Or maybe you're on the other side and abundance is rejoicing and things are going pretty well for you. Now, the biblical claim is both circumstances leave you incredibly vulnerable to falling and to struggling and to pride. Because think about it this way. If you're struggling at Christmas, what's your most, what are you in danger of doing? Well, potentially, you're in danger of thinking that God isn't paying attention. He's not watching. He doesn't care. He's a miser. He's, he's this guy who's, he's like that old aunt that has all this money in the bank but won't give you any. It's easy to think of God that way if you're struggling. But on the other side, which is just as dangerous, if you think things are going really well, you're prone to thinking, because things are going well, God must approve of my life. And they're both terribly dangerous. 
there's this one beautiful quote. Um, Robert Ferrer Capon, is a, he's passed away, but he was a scholar, minister. I think I've mentioned him before. He's one of these guys, when you read, you're always this close to thinking he's committing heresy because he's so, he thinks so differently that it's brilliant. And yet, I assure you, he generally is not committing heresy. But he comes so close because he thinks so differently than us. And in his book called The Supper of the Lamb, he says this beautiful line, which is in no way heretical. He says, in this veil of sorrows, we should be careful about allowing abundance to con us out of our hunger. You see, at Christmas, we're prone to thinking that because we're full, we're not hungering. We're, we think that because we've eaten a lot, because there's stuff under the tree, because we're doing well, there's health, there's family, that we're not hungering. And the, that's the lie. Nothing in this world will satisfy the hunger. Nothing will satisfy it. And we have to understand this entirely, that Christmas will fill us full of junk food and convince us we are full, but we're really not. And so the first fruits festival for Israel, and for us now as we think about it, was a reminder to Israel to say, don't be fooled by the abundance. You still need me. Nothing will satisfy your hunger but God. And there's that, there's that danger for all of us. And this time I will really close. C.S. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory, beautiful line, says this. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead, that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. The whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. And what he means is, think about this world. Think about how happy you are when you see your kids, your grandkids, or when you, whatever, when you have money, when you go on a vacation, you see art, you listen to a song you love. Think about that joy. And he says, if even this we find intoxicating, how much more incredible will it be when we drink from the real thing? And we have that to look forward to. And this is hope at Christmas for both the ones who are in want and the ones in abundance. Because if you're struggling, rejoice. Satisfaction has come. There's a reason to rejoice. But if you're in abundance, rejoice. Because all the joy you think you have now is nothing compared to what you're going to enjoy in Christ. And so this is the point of Christmas. We trust God because he has come. And this is why if we're not, it's that, well, I don't know if we're ever going to sing. I don't know if it's appropriate to sing in churches anymore. I don't know. It's called, um, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Who knows that old song? Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Man, if we believed it, we'll never shut up about him. We'll never stop. Go tell it on the mountain. Go tell it on Lundy's Lane and Clifton Hill and everywhere else. That's what Christmas is. It's the, it tells you the truth that you are hungering, but don't worry, satisfaction has come. That's Christmas. Let's pray.